All right, we're beginning. Uh, today we are going to look at Richard Weaver. Sounds like a tough dude. <laughs> he was he was very tough. All right, give it to us. Uh, Richard Weaver, he was born in 1827 and died in 1896. He had a nickname, Undaunted Dick. He was a boxer, but he uh, initially paid his bills by working in the coal mines. And he was actually down working in the coal mines when he was seven years old. Seven! Yeah, these were in the days before child labor laws. But the there were times when he would be out down in those coal mines, you'd never see any light for six days. Dude. Yeah. And he uh, was in a home which had was an unequal yoke. His mother was a believer, a praying woman, and his uh, father was a drunk. And he has a very early memory of him and his younger brother clinging holding close to their mother and crying out to their father, don't kill my mother. Hmm. And he would he was standing over uh, Richard's mother with an axe, and he was raising it up. And he, he would say uh, that if she didn't stop praying, he was going to cleave her in two. He was going to bring down that axe. And, and, but... Uh, but she would, looked up at her husband and said, Ah, George, you cannot let it fall unless the Lord permits. <laughs> <laughs> so she, uh, she believed she was in God's hand praying for her son, all of her sons. And uh, uh, Richard, he didn't become a believer right away, but he had these Christian influence. He had an older brother who was a primitive Methodist preacher. And in those days, there was quite a bit of power often uh, still in the Methodist churches. Okay. Uh, nowadays, you're, you're, not, you're, bit, you're a bit surprised if you, you meet a Methodist, especially with the larger denominations who has any life in them at all. But uh, when you look back to the middle 1800s, and even toward the end of the 1800s, there are many of the churches there that were still quite fundamental while their seminaries and some of their bishops were going, going bad doctrinally, yet in the churches themselves, they were quite vigorous. Okay. And so it was his older brother who I believe led him to Christ, and, but he was up and down. Hmm. He had been a boxer, and he... Uh, he had this one memory. He had, he had sworn off uh, going into boxing because boxing in those days was quite brutal. And he had this one memory of, of uh, coming out of a prayer meeting. And, and uh, there was a girl who was being abducted. She was being dragged away by three men. And she cried out, um, uh, uh, she said, Richard, protect me. Uh. <laughs> well, Richard, Richard Weaver was a great big guy, very strong. And he just flung off his jacket and his hat 
and began to pummel these three guys. Yes. He had two of them down on the ground, and then he was the ringleader. He was going after him, just beating him up. And, uh, and but after he, he had done it, he thought, I... Uh, I backslidden. I, I should not have done this. Uh. So, although he had protected this woman, but, yeah. but he he went down to the nearest um, uh, uh, what do they call it? A public house. Yeah. There was a often you'd have an inn. Maybe somebody would have a house large enough where they would maybe rent a room or it would be a, an inn, but also they would have a. Uh, a, a large room where people could go, like yeah. what we would call a community room. Okay. So if you live in a place, you have these small cottages, mm -hmm. and then you'd have a community room. If you have a family get together, you go over to the community room. Yeah. Well, that's what they mean by a public house. A pub. Yeah, a pub. Yeah. Yeah, short for public house. Yeah. And and most communities would have them. Yeah. And so if a bunch of friends get over, you don't have enough room in your house. Your house is so small. Their houses were tiny. And so they would they'd go down to the public house to sit around and they might drink some beer. Yeah. And often beer was being served. And he comes in and the, the matron of the public house realized something was wrong because he'd just been in this fight and beat yeah. up these three guys. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he says, you want a pint? You want, you want some beer? She said, I'm not she said she wasn't going to give him any. No, I'm not. Well, a few of Richard's friends were there, and they yeah. said, you can come over and have ours. And so he'd sat down, and then and then pretty soon the father of this woman, who has, had almost been abducted, he comes in, and he realized what had happened. Yeah. Richard had beat up these men, but uh, he, he was so enraged, the father of the girl, that he, he almost launched a lynch mob to go after these three guys. Oh. Well, it, the, the whole episode, it was so convicting to Richard, taking justice in his own hands. I, I, I don't know if he should have felt guilty or not. I mean, to me, but, if but he, he did. If he was born in the U.S., he wouldn't have felt guilty. What? If he was born in the U.S., he wouldn't have felt guilty. Well, I'm surprised that being in England the way he was, he yeah. lived in England huh. that, that in those days, that they, he would have felt guilty. That's so weird. I mean... But Obviously. I think it was the fact that he almost killed these men. Oh, okay. Maybe that was it. Maybe he took it too far. He didn't. Well, you jump them. into an altercation and you don't really know what's going on exactly. You just hear this. Stop the, the threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been enough, I suppose, to to secure the girl's safety and then report the men. I don't know. Yeah. But but he after that he 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 had about six months previous, made a profession of faith, and he was going regularly to the to the class meetings where they would teach the Word of God. And and now he felt like he had been backslidden. Went back to boxing. And uh, he got quite a reputation as a boxer. And uh, I I think he was, he was just a young guy at the time. But one day he was boxing with a guy, and the guy... He, he struck him right in the noggin. He got hit him square, and blood was just pouring out of this guy. And he looked at it, and that verse came to him, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That thought came to him. As he was looking at the blood which he was shedding, yeah. and beating this guy almost senseless, and, and uh, he, he swore off boxing, 
And at that time, he came in contact with believers. And this was uh, around the year 1853. Okay. He met a gal. She was a lovely Christian girl. He got married. And together, they began to serve the Lord. Nice. And so he was still working in the mines as a coal miner. And he had previously been boxing a lot, but now instead of boxing, he went out preaching. Okay. And gave himself to preaching. Well, these were in the years right immediately before that revival time that swept through the north of Ireland and Scotland and then down into England. Okay, yeah. And that it was, uh, uh, well, he got married in 1853. The revival struck in 1858. And the men that he got involved with uh, became quite legendary. Hmm. Uh, one of them was a lawyer by the name of Reginald uh, Radcliffe. Reginald Radcliffe. I've heard this name. Yeah. Well, Radcliffe, there's, a, I think, an actor by the name oh, yeah, of Radcliffe. Daniel, the guy who acted for Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel, yeah. But, well, anyway, Reginald Radcliffe, he was, a, uh, he was more of an upper-tier Englishman. He was okay. a lawyer, and he would... He was fluent in French. He went over and preached a lot on the continent. He was very influential and a big supporter, too. Okay. And he met Weaver. But this was a great time of trial. I, I remember that there was a time when he was working in his brother. His brother had a coal mine. Okay. I don't know what it takes to own a coal mine, but he had one. But, the, but his uh, for some reason... His brother's business collapsed, and he had been and and Richard had been working in the coal mines for three months, and none of the, and he was not getting paid, mm. so he had no money. He was newly married, had nothing in the cupboards, nothing at all, and he was sitting at home with his wife, and she said, "Well, Richard, let's pray," and 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 Richard, he couldn't even raise raised his voice to pray. He just broke down and wept. Big, strong guy. And he just wept and wept. And, and she began to pray. And, and, she, and Richard said, it was just like she was talking to somebody who was right there in the room. And she was just crying out, Lord, to meet their need. Yeah. So and he, so right at that time... Faithful woman. Yeah, amen. It was, it was exactly... It was the kind of prayer where it was that sense where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything. R Richard was agreeing with it, but he, he was so overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, when you're a hardworking guy, you're doing everything you can to support your, your family, to get by, and yet things are just not coming together. Yeah. And so he was just broken by it. They... Sim they had barely, it was in the evening, they barely had finished praying and a knock came at the door. And there was a woman on the other side of the door. It was a class leader. They'd have these, uh, at that time, I think he might have been still visiting the Methodist, primitive Methodist group. And they had these, they called them class leaders. They were ones who um, would 
conduct the regular meetings on Saturday nights. Okay. And it was a class leader's wife, and she had something bulky in her apron. She was carrying her apron and holding up something. And she said, Mrs. Weaver, are you in need of anything? They didn't even have any food. Not only didn't have any money, they had no food. So Richard said, my wife sat down unable to speak and burst into tears. Well, Weaver had been weeping, and now his wife's weeping too. And, and then she said, yes, we have not a bit of food in the house, nor money to buy any. Well, here's a loaf and some butter and sugar and tea. And our George has sent you a shilling. And you are to come to our house to dinner tomorrow. <laughs> nice. We were at prayer, and the master felt impressed that you needed help. Uh, and so this sister left. Yeah. And 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 and, and Mrs. Uh, you know Richard's wife. He, he just she just turned to him and said, "Now, Richard, you see that God will answer prayer. Let us have faith in Him." And after Thanksgiving, they were again getting ready to go end the night, and another dot knock at the door came, and, and and Richard said, "Well, who's there?" "Open the doors," was the reply. I opened it. A hand was put in, and a man's voice said, "Take this from the Lord; He will provide." <laughs> Didn't even know who the hand belonged to. What? <laughs> he just sticks his hand in. So, and then he had about five shillings was placed in his hand. Wild. Well, you know, in those pre-inflation days or back, well, they had inflation in those days too, but, you know, five shillings doesn't sound like much, but it was enough to get them by. Mm -hmm. Praise God. So it was just an experience like that, even though it wasn't much, mm -hmm. and yet it was that idea, you pray when you need it, the Lord is going to be there on your behalf. Yeah. And David said, I've, I'm, I was once young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. So um, it was right at that time then, he just went out starting to preach and, and the revival struck. In 1950, 18, excuse me, 1859, there's a man named Lord Radstock. Okay. And he was in the nobility. And uh, and there's a little book written about him, and he ended up making amazing missionary trips into Russia. And it was also a mentor and a father in the faith to Richard, uh, or I mean to... Um, uh, Frederick Bedecker. Okay. Frederick Bedecker was another great missionary. But there was a whole network of these guys. And they were out there giving themselves regularly to preaching of the gospel. And I also, I already mentioned uh, Reginald uh, Radcliffe. He was quite an amazing guy. And while they were out there preaching at that time when the revival struck, I think it was in 1858, that one of a young man was converted who was a close friend of Harry Morehouse. And Harry Morehouse then was led to Christ. 
And Henry, Harry Morehouse, or Henry Morehouse, you went by both, but, you know, Harry for short, or Harry is a common yep. name. Uh, it was this carnival barker you and a street fighter. Yeah, okay, you mentioned him. Yeah, he had a very boyish face. Okay. He looked like a, like a, a he always looked like a teenager. So uh, people and, would love to get in a fight with him. Yeah, and it was him that when later, in later years, uh, George Mueller met him, and Harry suggested to him, I, you know, I, I might be coming to America. Well, uh, um, uh, uh, did I say Mueller? I meant, yeah, you did say George Mueller, yeah. So D.L. Moody. Well, George Mueller might have met him too, but yeah. D.L. Moody met him. Okay. And, DL, and, and he says to Moody, I might be coming to America. And Moody was in touch with all kinds of people. He was quite a networking uh, guy who was uh, always, uh, he, was, he was a promoter. Yeah. And he always trying to encourage people. But sometimes you'll have people who they, they'll state an ambition. You look at it and think, yeah, he's he's not much here, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and he and he rather had that thought about Henry, just the the way he carried himself and the way he talked. But he admired his the way in which he preached the gospel. He did admire that, but he didn't know much about him. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Well, if you come to Chicago, let me know." Well, after a while, well, Moody went back home, and sure enough, he got a letter, and I'm coming on these dates, and Moody was going to be out of town, and and so uh, Moody said, well, you, it's possible you can have some meetings at the chapel where he was working in Chicago, and, and he went there, and Moody's wife attended, and it was in those meetings where, where uh Henry Morehouse took up John 3.16 and he demonstrated how God loves the world, but not just from John 3.16 itself, Mm -hmm. but starting in the beginning of the Bible and just marching your way through and proving and demonstrating how God loves the world. And the meetings were quite remarkable. And and Moody's wife, she commented when Moody asked, well, how, how's this young man doing? How is his preaching? He says, yeah. well, it's very good, but it's not like your preaching. Well, Moody thought, well, if it's not like my preaching, it must be wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Moody's wife said, no, you, you come listen to it. I think you're going to, uh, you, you need to listen to it for yourself. So when he came back and he did sit and listen, he was just so thunderstruck by that message of the love of God. Because Moody, previously to this, had really been so much preaching, convicting messages about the guilt of sin, all those necessary things that you have to bring up. But he was slack in his emphasis on the wrath of God, really slack on the whole idea that God is love. Okay. So he later said that the preacher Harry Morehouse totally changed his life okay. and changed his preaching. Yeah, and it's in his son's biography. That's more the more authoritative biography of D.L. Moody, written by his son, and he tells the whole story. But I, I only mention that that uh, um, Lord Radstock, uh, Reginald Radcliffe, teaming up with uh, with Richard Weaver, they were going out preaching 
these guys. Mm -hmm. Richard Weaver, a very common guy, is a coal miner yeah, and yeah. a boxer. But these other guys, high-level guys, but but fellows who, I mean, in society, yeah. but loving to preach together and working together. And, and uh, when that revival time struck, there was such an amazing outflow of work being done. Uh, one of the guys who would later be a mentor to Harry Morehouse was John Hambleton. He had been an actor. Okay. Uh, a guy who had gone on expeditions. He'd gone to Australia and actually to out to California hunting for gold. And he was a, you know, one of these, I don't know if you'd, how you'd picture actors in those days, but in acting true, raised in, in acting. And he had gotten converted. And he was working with Harry Morehouse. And um, uh, all these meetings going on, it was just like there were so many of these impromptu and opener meetings going on encircling Chicago, uh, the city of London yeah. that it was almost like the city was being besieged by an attacking army. Wild. That's the way they felt. Um, one of the things, uh, this is a beautiful thing, that they would, it was said at that time that if you would take a wagon and put it out in the corner of a field and you'd announce, in other words, the wagon would be an impromptu pulpit. Yep. Somebody would stand up in the wagon and announce that Richard Weaver was going to be there to preach. Within two hours, you could have a thousand people coming out and standing in that field. Wow. So many people were so eager to hear the gospel from this man. Man. I know. So he spoke their mother tongue. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so, now, England did the... I have two questions. One of them did, is, did the government at that time, was this a problem? Was it cool? Were they like, oh, yay, our crime rate is going down? Or did they get involved themselves? You mentioned someone was in nobility and had to deal with uh, mission work to Russia. Yeah. Is this this is a tail end of the Victorian era, right? So is it? It is Well, no, no. You know, Queen Victoria, I mean her reign was a really long reign. Yeah. Went through the heart of the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. And of course she was in the Anglican church, but there was and if you were Anglican that was a special that was a special benefit, you yeah. know, as far as being in uh, with the political people. But a lot of these people there, the people I'm talking about, almost none of them, some of them were raised in Anglicanism. Yeah. But almost none of them were Anglicans. Okay. Now, but so was the government opposed to this movement or was it a welcome? Well, they, they uh, in England... Uh, they have a different way of looking at free speech than we do here in America. But at that time, but they still have this view of uh, a Christian-informed view of freedom of conscience. Mm. That is that, that nobody can really tell you what you must believe. Even though they have a state-sponsored religion, yeah. yet there is there's great freedoms. 
like for instance, you hear about Hyde Park in London where people would go and they'd maybe come with a step, a short step ladder, yep. and they'd stand up on the ladder and, and preach. Yeah. And and get or or we'd say preach, but maybe lecture about some favorite topic. And it's it's a free speech area. It's a known place where people would go. And and so open air meetings, John Wesley was doing it in the first half of the 1700s, and with great effect, thousands of people yeah. would, were listening to his preaching. George uh, Whitfield was a great open-air preacher. Yeah. So, so we have, I, I feel like, culture, um, world events surrounding these revivals. There's the Great yeah. Awakening, Revolutionary War. There's this happening across the pond the civil war is going to happen in a few years yeah clearly it's bubbling over and there's already political you know so did those events speak into this was there a sense of people being like man this is not well many of the, my our, our listeners today do don't remember the vietnam war it wasn't part of their life but you hear about it in the yeah. media and yeah. in the movies and uh, I, I lived at a time when the, the Vietnam War was a very big deal. During the time of the Vietnam War, you had this protest movement, which made glowing promises of a revolution and a great change was going to happen. Yeah. And the rock groups were all trumpeting this. And there are many, many popular songs which were revolutionary songs. Mm-hmm. And they were banner songs anthems of the revolution but as we as the war in vietnam wound down and of all people richard nixon who became an infamous villain yeah politically uh, a president through the republican party yet he was the one who ended the war yeah and 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 uh, and people were were thinking that these evil politicians were going to continue to string along the war and kill off our our generation and and uh, you know they kept that war thing going. Yeah. Well, what happens when the war is over? The war is done. We're not at war anymore. Yeah. And about the only thing they had to talk about was the legalization of marijuana. That was it. There was. I mean, what is what became of the big revolution? And you had all these people who had given themselves and devoted themselves to listening to this revolutionary talk and uh, maybe leaving college, going off to live at a commune out in Colorado, living in virtually a cave and becoming like Neanderthals. And they were burned out. And I, as a young person, I wasn't, I I was just an observer. I was a kid. But I felt so lied to. So if there was a, a kind of a setup yeah. that where the devil had really oversold himself yeah. and people saw that what had gone on in the whole revolutionary movement, yeah. the whole hippie thing, was just a big lie. It wasn't true. Yeah. All this, and, and you, you listen to it in classic rock, yeah. all those old songs you found out that so many of these performers were standing in line for a liver transplant and they're they're burned out, they're messed up, 
they're perverted in their thinking. Yeah. And and so you think these are not the people I want to be like. You felt totally betrayed by them. Yeah, yeah. They were making these glowing promises and now the gospel came with great power. Hmm. And there are certain individuals who are preaching the gospel. I I think of Guys like Josh McDowell, who published a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, had a tremendous influence. Yeah. yeah. There, were, there were many people who were high-profile evangelists. Billy Graham at that time was in full stride. Yeah. And there were other men who were out preaching the gospel in a powerful way. And there, of course, were, there was open-air preaching going on on the campuses in some places. <laughs> And, and I, I, I recall all of that. I, so so the, uh, the summing up of the Vietnam War and the way in which so many young people had felt so betrayed really opened a huge door. And there was a wave, a breath of revival that swept right through the country. Yeah. We, sometimes it's called in the media the Jesus movement. Yeah. Well, something like that was going on in England. Okay. So there had been a revival in the the last part of the 1830s uh, with uh, William Burns and with uh, Robert Murray McShane. Okay. It was a localized revival up in Dundee in a neighboring city, and there was it was it was an amazing work though, and that revival became an example of what you should look for. Okay. When revival comes, this is what it's going to look like. And and uh, we had these people giving themselves to prayer in the north of Ireland, and they were hearing reports about awakenings in the United States, and God began to work. And, and there's no... There's no materialistic explanation like economic conditions were such that da 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 although the Crimean War which had gone on it was a war with Russia that the yep. Brits were involved in was like our Vietnam okay it was a very costly war it was a it was it was one of these things where the Britons were saying you know what are we doing over there what, what what's yeah. what are we gaining by this war and there's a, there's a great cost not only monetarily but in lives hmm. and so britain because of their huge outreach yeah. they would get involved in these struggles and a lot of people were totally burned out by it so that preceded the time of revival okay you had these men returning from the war and and uh, some of them had gotten converted. Now, that was the case up in Scotland. The guy that mentored Donald Ross, he was, he was a, a guy who worked as a chaplain among soldiers okay. during the Crimean. So, if, so th that occurs to me yep. as something which was going on. Um, but there were, there were movements, as we've talked about before, where certain truths begin to be taught with great power. And 
these, when they grab hold of the people, they're just shook by it. Okay, yeah. Now, people who otherwise they might know quite a bit about Scripture, know the Bible stories, but certain things are just not hearing clearly taught. Yeah. They're going to churches where it's obscured. One of those things was the idea that you could know that you're born again. Okay. And that once you become a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Many, many, they would teach a kind of a later experience where you later uh, receive the Spirit, or they thought about the Spirit working in us kind of like it did in the Old Testament to come upon you. And, and it may be so that there are seasons in our life in which God does come upon us powerfully, like he yeah. came upon certain of the judges and worked with them mightily. Yeah. But Jesus said about the Spirit, the other comforter, yeah. he is with you and he shall be in you. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit was working with these people, just as he had in the Old Testament. He was with the disciples. But on the day of Pentecost, something new happened. Yeah. And a lot of the religious people there in England, they were placing the Christians back in a position as if they're just like the Old Testament saints. Well, are they? Or is the church a new institution? Is it different? Is it more? Is it something more than ancient Israel? Yeah, certainly more, yeah. I, I think it has to be. Yeah. Yeah, so those tru- those are just two truths. But there are other things, too, that, uh, that freed the Christians. Uh, because when you're, when you're thinking that your Christian experience is all tied up with the ecclesiastical machinery of the time. Yeah. So, so, for instance, we have to have a clergyman pl- present. We can't preach the word unless we're in a church building. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's where God mystically works upon us and reveals himself. Well, what if, what if we come to see that God can meet with us when we meet together in our home without a clergyman present? And that we can, and that even though I have never been ordained in the church, I have the right by God, not as a rebel, yeah. but somebody totally submitted and willing to do the will of God to preach the word of God. Well, that's exactly what happened with Richard Weaver. Yeah. Yeah, he was a boxer. He wasn't a seminarian. Now, now I value I value the things which are taught in good schools. Yeah, you know I read the books. Just I, a lot of the books in my library are written by seminary professors. I I'm not against that at all. Yeah, and who would be? But when you think that unless you've gone through a certain route, then you have no authority to teach the word. That is a kind of bondage. That's just plain not right. And and it's a, it's a huge hindrance to the work of God. So these guys, they realize, I have every right to be out there preaching the word and conducting open air meetings, conducting Bible studies. And this kind of thing terrifies people in these church groups that want to maintain a kind of iron-fisted control yeah. over the work of God. They're terrified by it. Yeah, there, there's, also a, there's also a sense of disorder so let everything be done decently in an order yeah and if you're cut from um thick denominational cloth there being clear confessions 
and uh, things that you you must subscribe to, it it it, it uh, kind of corrals the teaching and keeps it in a, a sense of order, so that you do avoid wing nuts just kind of going off because. Okay. America does have a very strong non-denominational movement with all these churches that sprung up. Some sprung up out of like the Art Reformed Church of America or whatever. Yeah, right. But they were so powerful, so huge, it kind of just became their own thing, separate mm-hmm. from the denomination, and there was no steering it. So are you thinking and, about certain of the mega churches, which yeah. kind of take on a life of their own, yeah. and they're no longer, and then they they might have at one time been very obviously denominationally connected but now they say you know what i don't know that we really need this denomination yes yeah and so that's that's the fear and so i I think it's a valid fear um but i do think also the fear is there because there is a a disbelief in um submitting purely to scripture like scripture is my confession and the the kicker is well who's going to interpret it how you know and so there's that that rub, but I that's yeah. that would be a that would be a fear when we, when we we'll talk about that. Like, hey, you know, this guy was uneducated, and it's fine. He has the authority to, and it's right and good. And I stand with that. What's up? Well, we're not we're not saying it's not right to be trained. Mm-hmm. Like John Hamilton mentored Harry Morehouse. Uh, Richard Weaver was mentored and trained. Under Lord Radcliffe, or I mean uh, Reginald Radcliffe and and Lord Radstock. Okay. These men were deep in the Word. We believe in mentoring. Yes. We believe in training. John Wesley. Many of the men that he saw converted, and men who were stepping forward and saying, "I want to become an itinerant preacher under him." Well, he had been educated at Oxford. Wesley had. So he was an educated man. He was a cultured man. His yeah. father was a writer. His father was a, uh, uh, an ordained clergyman in the Church of England. And that was his whole background. Yeah. And and so he had that privilege. But many of the preachers that came under him, and at one any given time in England, he could have 150 men who were all doing itinerant work. Some of these men were almost illiterate when they first began. Really? And he was all—he was always trying to train them. Be a reader. Nice. Get into the Word. Yeah. And he himself, he would be studying the languages, and you know, he himself was always trying to better himself in the sense of, of being theologically astute. Okay, yeah. But uh, the assumption that we make when... We become Christians, begin reading our Bibles, mm-hmm. is that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and the Holy Spirit is able to make himself understood. We have an anointing from the Father, which is truth and is no lie, mm-hmm. and he teaches us all things. So, And that certainly has to apply to, to core orthodoxy. Yeah. It has to apply to yeah. that. Yeah. And the f- plain fact is that all around the world, you've got these Christians, many of them self-taught, as we would call it. But are they self-taught or are they taught by the Spirit of God? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Here they, what, and what's the proof of it? What's the proof of it? The fact that they maintain orthodoxy. Yeah. 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 
That's good. So, London is surrounded, besieged, <laughs> besieged. by these th- people showing up to these open air meetings. Yeah. And Richard Weaver has his his I don't know if you would say fame. His fame has spread as a speaker that people it really resonates with them. Whatever yeah. he's saying. And was he a believer's baptism guy? Was he like, get oh, yeah, saved yeah. and we're by a river now, let's get you dunked real quick? Or? Oh, um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, he did believe he held to baptism by immersion. Um, I don't know how the primitive Baptist, you know, his older brother was a primitive Baptist preacher. Well, primitive... A pr- not a primitive Baptist, he's a primitive Methodist. Yeah. Which was a branch of the Methodist connection. Okay. And... It, they were saying we're going back to the original Methodists. So I, I'm I'm sorry. Um, I I don't know if they practiced immersion or not. I don't know. Okay. But the actually a lot of Methodists, it's how you get baptized is not such a big deal. They're not. It's yeah. not a big item. Yeah. With them. Um. And I don't think that they hold anything like. They would have held anything like uh, baptismal regeneration. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. How did he function that way? These other men that he worked with were all out there forming congregations, just non-denominational congregations, and telling them that the Bible itself is your creed. Okay. That's what they were doing. Okay. And that's what he did. One of the guys that he saw converted was W.T.P. Woolston. That sounds familiar. W.T.P. Woolston became a, um, uh, was a medical doctor and taught medical students up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and had an amazing uh, ministry amongst these university students. Okay. Yeah. And, and he would get a you know, room full of them yeah. and be preaching the gospel. And he was just a delightful... He has a lot of really encouraging books. Hmm. And he had a Scottish accent, so he's easy to listen to, right? There. Yeah. There. That counts for something. <laughs> Quite a bit. I mean, it was uh, like the fruit in, in Weaver's ministry. These crowds flocking to hear him, but also uh, just to know that there was a whole network of guys who were active at that time doing this very thing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, he had some discouragements. He suffered from epilepsy, huh. uh, probably from his boxing days. And he went through some uh, uh, real discouraging times. He went through the fire and through the water. Yeah. But the Lord brought him out, and that was the happy part. And so he knew what sorrow was. And uh, uh, I think one time he was accused of something, some irregularity. I don't know the facts about it. I've never run into anything to substantiate it later on in his ministry. Okay. But uh, that's a very hard thing. Yeah. You know, when you when you have people accusing you, yeah. and whether it's true or not, yet I, I remember one uh, a guy who was very active with a high-level ministry, and there was a young man who had had, a, I think, a breakup in his marriage and was accused of 
of some irregularity. Okay. And this older man said, and I listened to him say this, where there's smoke, there's fire. Huh. As if to say, if the guy's got problems, he's probably to blame. Ah, you know, yeah, yeah. you know. So people are suspicious, and and they sometimes think the worst. Yeah. And Weaver went through those experiences. Hmm. Yeah. But um, he claimed innocence. I, uh, uh, I I traced the matter and I tried to find out what the accusation actually was. I never could find it out. Evidently, it wasn't a big deal. Okay. At least not something that other writers talked about or want. maybe their sense of modesty and discretion was such that they said, look, we don't talk about those things. Yeah. Yeah, now we have a desire to flush out every single detail. Yeah, right, <clears throat> right. Did he write? Did, are there any publications that he was oh, responsible for? That's a good question. Wrote his testimony... Uh, you can get his biography, and that's a lot of interesting things in that biography. Okay. And it's, what, what is that called? Uh, well, James Patterson wrote Richard Weaver's Life Story, okay. The English Evangelist, and that was published by John Ritchie. And um, uh, R.C. Morgan wrote a book, The Life of Richard Weaver. And there's an entry in... Hen Henry Pickering's book, Chief Men Among the Brethren, okay. about him, and also some interesting things in David Beatty's book, The Brethren, The Story of a Great Recovery. Okay. That's a really good book, um, uh, uh, David Beatty's book. Okay, The Brethren, The, the Story, Story of, of a Great Recovery. Interesting, okay. It's a really good book. It's, uh, it's not a sectarian book, and neither is, is Henry Pickering's book. A Chief Men Among the Brethren. Yeah, okay. that's... it's. It's just telling uh, a page or two about notable men who are used to the Lord. Okay. And of different flavors, of different complexions yeah. in a way, yeah. but men who are known to be men of God. Nice. Nice. Yeah. People like George Mueller and and, and, you know, and Weaver would have known and worked with George Mueller, been supported by George Mueller. Okay. George Mueller was a big supporter. Nice. Uh, in, in that time. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we think of him as the guy needing all the support, but he was... Yeah, right. Was I think that people were funneling money through him. He was like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, um, a financial, like a trust fund providing <laughs> for all kinds of people. That's great. That's great. The early days of the 501c3s. <laughs> and what was his wife's name? Sarah Bradshaw. Well, that was her maiden name. Okay, Sarah Bradshaw Weaver. And no children that we know of. Possibly some children. Yeah. Not off the top of our head. Yeah. Interestingly, in those days, back in the 1800s, when you'd have a person writing their own story, they would give their official, their career story, okay. or their uh, public life. But you often would could read an entire biography and know very little about their family. Interesting. Because that's private. That's my family life. Interesting. Yeah. Like David it's, Livingston. Right, like right. The fact that he neglected all his kids. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. He brought his children. He is, his wife and his, and some of his children were with him on one of his missionary journeys, and one of the children died. Yeah. And so it wasn't the case that he just immediately sent them all back to Scotland with 
uh, no. David Livingston. Yeah, yeah. That right. wasn't the case. But um, but he was a guy who would be gone for, he could be gone for months and then years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another story, though. Yep, sorry. Yep, we'll, we'll go there. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to, this is it. We're done now. Thank you. Okay. Okay, you're welcome. So in discussing uh, Richard Weaver and his children and whatnot, um, we looked further and yeah um, it, uh, he had six children all of which came to know the Lord his wife Sarah she was a godly woman she passed away in 1881 several years before about 15 years before uh, Richard Weaver Richard he didn't even get to 70 so he was so she was probably in her 50s when she died wow and uh, she gathered, gathered her children around her, and she was exhorting them to serve the Lord, to go on for God. And then she quoted the, the poem, What is there here to court my stay, or hold me back from home, while angels beckon me away, and Jesus bids me come. And then she said to her, her husband, Richard, You'll try after I'm dead and gone to win more souls to Christ than you've done while I was living. And if I can, I'll pray for you in heaven. <sighs> and not too long after that, he was invited to give a series of gospel meetings in Edinburgh, Scotland. And there was a wealthy man who uh, was uh, able to get him into a place called Drill Hall, and there were as many as 6,000 people coming each night. Wow. And uh, a man I'd mentioned earlier, Duncan Matheson, he was uh, a mentor to uh, Donald Ross, and he had been a like a like an army chaplain to soldiers in the Crimean War, and he was a great evangelist himself. But he said about those meetings, his appeals, this is Richard Weaver's speaking, was overwhelming. I have seldom seen such an impression produced on a people. It seems, it seemed an hour of solemn decision. The hall was still as the grave and solemn as eternity itself. It is evident God gave the word to various people for the cleansing of sins with convicting power. Uh, so, uh, uh, Richard Weaver, a man that God blessed, simple guy, but a man full of the Holy Spirit of God. Mm. And uh, I just, just delight to think about how God can, by his great grace, save somebody like that and make him what he did. Yeah, yeah. And they did have six children. That was yeah, they had six children. They all came to the Lord, loved the Lord. Yeah. So praise God. Yeah. Intense. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah.